Last week we started a new series entitled Thinking Rightly. And if you haven't heard the message online, Thinking right, Rightly About God, I would strongly urge you to do that because the everything else based hinges upon that central concept and the message uh, Thinking Rightly About God is fundamental to this series. Today, we want to focus on thinking rightly about priorities. Because in, in our days, our, one of our constant struggle is busyness. What do we choose? There's so many things to choose from, so many options. And the concept of balance. Is, um, how do we balance work and family? Uh, how do we balance our kids' extracurricular activities and, and their spiritual life? And all different kinds of things. And we are confused quite a bit. And our is the generation that we want so many things. And one of the impactful moments for me uh, about eight years ago when we went to the Bruni area, the remote area, that closest city that has an airport, was a five-hour bus drive as we're visiting Wade and Helen and their families. We realized the pace of the family life, even for our kids, we were there about just altogether about two weeks, but there was a definite impact, almost like a spiritual disciplines packed into those two weeks, much deeper than any retreats that we we've been to, any tra trainings we've been to, has a lot to do with clarity of focus and lack of distraction. And even in terms of kids, and Theo and Kia, they're much younger, and one of the questions that I asked in light of our Orange County life, aren't you afraid that your kids are missing a lot? They're homeschooled, they're, they play with Chinese kids out there, actually more that um, unreached people groups trying to be more cautious about security reasons that I'm not mentioning. So there's not much to do. No cable, no cartoon network. And for us to see their adjustment, initially, they're going crazy. Seth, uh, after about three days, said, can we go home now? I need to go to the bathroom. But after three days, he was fine. Everyone was fine. Today's passage is an interesting passage. I'm really glad that we actually went through this passage as our one of our quiet time passage, recent quiet time passage. So let's put ourselves in their shoes and ask some questions that, what do we know about these two disciples, John the Baptist, um, First one is we need to know about the John the Baptist a little bit. He was a radical man. 
He lived in the desert. He made his own clothes out of camel's hair and the belt. And he was eating locust and honey as his main diet. And he was feared by religious leaders, government officials. Why? Because he was the man who didn't fear anything, not even his life. When he preached, there was a sense of power and authority, and then many people came to him to get baptized. A symbolic act of being repentant and turning their lives to God. Many of those people were radical young men who wanted to learn from this radical teacher. Everyone thought that he could be Elijah coming back from life. Oh, he is the promised Messiah. He has such a power and authority. The religious leaders, and obviously, little fearful about his impact, growing impact, and jealous of, of that as well. People are all people are going to him. Instead of confronting him directly, he's they send their servants to get the answer. Who are you? Are you the Messiah? I am not. Are you Elijah? I am not. Then who are you? Tell us who you are so that we could go back to Tell our master. He quotes a messianic uh, prophecy from the book of Isaiah. I am the voice of calling, shouting out in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. That's my role. That's who I am. Instead of kind of giving him uh, treatment that, oh, he's a totally different person, he's like you and me, who has feelings, who has desires, who has temptations, all that. Just imagine this. At the peak of your popularity, everyone is following you. And some of us, and many of our religious leaders, spiritual leaders who have fallen, have done that because of that. Maybe I could be Messiah. At least someone like Elijah. Look at this impact. People are lining up. It takes all day to to baptize them. Young men want to stay with me, to learn from me. What did he say? I am not even worthy. There is a man who is coming after me. But he is greater, far greater than me, because he was before me. There's some subtlety of what he's saying about Jesus, because he was born earlier, and he was, as a matter of fact, cousin to Jesus, who was born earlier. And then he said, I am not even worthy to untie his shoelaces, sandal laces. I, I baptize you with the water. The one that who's coming behind me will baptize 
baptize you with the Holy Spirit. According to Jesus, in Matthew 11:1, 1, his opinion about John the Baptist was this. Among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John. Of course, this is the transitional time of Old Covenant and New Covenant. And he was the end of the Old Covenant. He was mentioning John in that sense. So he's not saying that all humanity he's the greatest person. So beyond that theological clarification, in Jesus' mind, you know that expression, right? He was the man. My main man. Now, let's take that attention to, to his two disciples. If you were young men who left everything behind to follow John the Baptist, this kind of radical leader, we're not talking about people who are wishy-washy and people who are spiritually lazy at all. These are people who are very emotionally, spiritually sharp, hungry for the right things, hungry to pursue God. In that setting, Jesus asked this question when John the Baptist again for the second time, look at the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. For every Jew, that, that expression was so easy to understand. They got it right away. Because the Old Testament religious system was animal sacrifice. And many of you who are next to the study are now so familiar with that. The blood um, the lamb that has no flaws should be chosen. And that lamb will be sacrificed and the, the blood of the lamb which actually points to the blood of Jesus. Animals' blood cannot forgive anybody's sin. But once a year high priest to take that blood of the lamb into the most holy place. So when John the Baptist said, look at the lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. Everybody understood. It caught two, two disciples' attention right away. And another subtlety of What's going on underneath is that your best disciple, two of the disciples are going to another teacher. John the Baptist's confession is he must decrease, he must increase, and I must decrease. He had a sense of purpose in life and clarity of who he is in identity, in the sovereign plan of God. And two disciples came. What is Jesus asking? 
What are you seeking? <coughs> if you read NIV, it will say simply, what do you want? But this is a loaded question. One of those questions that um, Eugene Peterson translates it as, what are you after? This is one of those questions. What is your life passion and ultimate priority in your life? What is that you're seeking from me? So if they were not prepared, they probably would say some things about Jesus could offer for, him, for them to get benefit from. And their answer? Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? The implication is this. We actually want you. Wherever you go, we will go. Wherever you stay, we will go. Wherever you lay your head, we will lay our heads. We want you. We seek you. Right question, right answer. Jesus, come and you will see. So this is where our thinking rightly begins. Now, oftentimes we think about, what are you seeking? And the religious rhetoric, evangelical spiritual rhetoric is, I seek God. As a matter of fact, I want to seek God first. But it, it, it's sometimes, sometimes kind of too vague, too conceptual. So what we want to do is think rightly on those priorities, what that looks like. Let's hear Jesus' answer first. Jesus' own answer on what to seek as the first thing is spelled out in Matthew 6, 33, as you know. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So we need to do operational definition a little further. A seek God first is a seek his kingdom and his righteousness. What is that? Kingdom of God is misunderstood or sometimes vaguely just one of those things up in the, up in the air. So when we say grace of God, it's kind of language that we throw out there. Think kingdom of God for our modern people, we have so many obstacles to understand because we don't have a sovereign among us. And maybe if you're British, you will understand just a little tiny better. But typical Americans think of kingdom of God or kingdom as a place, United Kingdom, way up there in the northern part of, western northern part of Europe. So we, th we tend to think about land but biblical concepts, simply, you need to think about kingship first. If you have a land, if you have a people, if you don't have a sovereign, king, kingship, there's no kingdom. So when Bible talks about kingdom of God, we're talking about kingship of God. What is kingship? Sovereign reign, rule of a king. That's kingship. 
And we don't know what that sovereignty looks like because king's word is final. You cannot debate. Oh, I have an objection. You can't do that. I mean, literally, tyrant king, evil king, for your bad attitude, one, one answer, wrong answer, because of his sovereign rule and reign, can command and chop up your head. We have no idea things like that. In, in our democratic society, equality of all human beings, rights. But in a best life, we need to think about kingdom of God means when God reigns completely, sovereignly. So kingdom of God, the best the phrase the theologians gives us is summarizing we are already in the kingdom of God because Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, but not yet fully. When Jesus returns, the consummation of kingdom of God will happen. So when, when Jesus was teaching his disciples, his priority shows there too. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Sovereign reign is already fully established in heaven. But on earth, it's still not yet. So he prays that as a first prayer, honor to you, Father, and let your reign and, and sovereign rule come. Try that in, your, in, your, in the morning prayer. Instead of, Lord, um, help my kids, begin to you pray for those good things. Lord, Reign in me, in my heart, in my family. Rule over our family. Let your kingdom come in our city, in our nation. That's a priority. In our church. How about his righteousness? His righteousness is simply put, the manifestation of God's will. When God's will really happens, God's goodness, God's righteousness, God's rightness shows up. So we are to seek these two things. It's simply to, to simply put, God's reign and God's will. One step further. So what does it really mean to seek God first? Put God first. To have a God as our top priority. I'm going to suggest three ways of thinking rightly about this. Number one, to put God first means to will one thing. To will one thing. James 1, 6 to 9 6 to 8 actually says this. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all ways. In this sense, double-mindedness is believing and doubting at the same time. But in our sense, to seek God and something else, to, to desire what God wants and something I desire. Soren Kierkegaard, from which my first son was named, my Soren, um, wrote a book. Just title of book itself is capturing, isn't it? The purity of heart is to will one thing. And ours is a generation that God becomes addition. I, I, I could even, even uh, suppose in, if any one of us is asked, what's your priority? Most of all, all of us, if not all, most of us will say God. God comes first. I put God first. But in yet, uh, my kids are really important too. My, my family is, oh, I cannot do without my family. And some of us, we, if we are allowed to be more honest, truthful, my career, as a man, as a woman, what I do and how effective I am in what I do gives me a sense of worth. And, and that's important. I want that too. I want to follow Christ and help the poor. I want to make the difference. I want to go to missions. But at the same time, I want a nice, comfortable living in Orange County. Nothing wrong with, with that, is it? Of course, nothing wrong with that. Can, we, can, I, can I desire and want and will good schools for our kids? And my confession Silas uh, was, was accepted by this inter-transfer, and Silas will be starting at Foothill High, where Soren is. Oh, I'm so thankful. Praise God. God answered our prayer. Have, has been merciful to me and to Kate because his social development, and he's only Asian in that typical Santa Ana school, and he's very limited in, in the sense that there's only gigs, in the, you know, there's math science and chess players and four or five kids who are really misfits, and the rest of them are mass people, and he was there. And then now, as Soren had exposed, expanded a little bit, Soren actually cares about how he looks. That's important for, you know, functionally, high-functionally autistic kid. But we want too many things. Would you say, I will one thing? The secret of priority is that single-mindedness. And David didn't say, two or three things I desire, I seek you. 
The one thing I have asked in Psalm 27 that I will seek again to behold the beauty of the Lord. To have an intimate fellowship with him. That was his pursuit wherever he went. So like I said, thinking rightly, we should not just assume that this is easy. We should not assume that conceptually everything will work in our practical life. So because of that reason, I would suggest there are four, at least four common barriers to single-mindedness in our, in our context. In my own life and yours, here are four. Number one is a comp- compartmentalization, that God is a part and not the whole, a means to a good life, not the end to life. Last week, we thought about that God is a part of my life. I still have the control and locus of control is me. The center of the universe is me. God comes in as a part of, very important part of my life. Sometimes very neglected part of my life. The compartmentalization that God cannot go into our areas, that as if we need to protect our finance from God, protect our kids from God, protect our house, comfortable living in Orange County from God, that becomes a compartment. It's absurd when you think about God as a creator, giver of every good things that we have have come from God. Everything I own belongs to God. You believe that, at least theoretically, right? Number two, indecision. Indecision, because there are so many options. When you go to supermarket, and Kate told me to get something, and I'm looking at this whole line of different things. Which brand? What do I get? Do you ever feel like that? And even even a simple cereal, now I, I got better because I, I, I do breakfast for kids every, every day now since, uh, since the free fall decision. But when I went to buy things for kids, I didn't know what to buy. Because why do they have to make so many? It's like giving me headache. We have a lot of options. And the easy very way to cop out, to will one thing, is delay the decision. Indecision. You know, famous um, church father, St. Augustine, when he was drifting away from God, this was his confession. I was neither wholly willing nor wholly unwilling. It will be easier for you to really detect, okay, I don't want God. And now you're confronted with that. And so I go, I really want, wholly want God. But you want to be safe. And I want God, not wholly, a little bit, but I want 
the world not holy just a little bit. Your indecision will mess up your priority. It's just talk. Your priority will never live out. God will never practically every day first in your life. Number three. Good things. The enemy of the best things. You heard that before. Is actually not a bad things. But good things. And that's why family and children, our, 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 our marriage and family, the entire thing becomes so elusive. Because these good things can distract us from the best things. Fourth and last, self-rationalization. We mistakenly think that we are willing for God. We want God. But at the same time, we want other things too. So in so doing, we become self-delusioning process of rationalizing. So many of us, evangelical church, active people say, God is my first. But in reality, God is not. Because of this rationalizing, dwelling and two things. A.W. Tozer said it's a curse of both ends. God, I want you both and I want good house. I want you and your will and your reign, but my way of pursuing career and managing money. Whatever. My purpose today, this morning, is not to make you feel bad and just beat your own self with self-condemnation. My concept, my intent is thinking rightly about God brings us to, into the light. We're the children of light. The first process of really real transformation is facing what's broken. Let's not be afraid. So to will one thing is a beginning point of putting God first. The ultimate priority. Second way, to put God first means to seek what God desires as the first thing. The second things are good things, right? The, our necessary needs. So the way that Jesus put is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all these good things, all these second things will be added on to you. How do you discern that? And I would, I would say it is to listen to the desire of God, the Holy Spirit within us. What He desires is actually the first thing. Galatians 5, 16 to 17, but I say, walk by the Spirit 
and you will not gratify desires of the flesh. In our own context, and we could apply in this way, if you, desire, if you seek what, the, what God desires in your heart, you will not be confused with indecisions or self-rationalization any longer. You will not compartmentalize your life. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For, though, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Well-meaning intention, noble intention, but never fleshed out obedience. <clears throat> so let's capture this clearly, think rightly about this. Second things are good things. The good of the temporal, man-centered word, word, outcome. These are one of those things, the conventional things, you grab anyone in the street, and even, especially in our church, you grab what do you think God wants? And people will say, oh, obviously this. Let me give you an example. Your marriage is rocky. And you're in deep trouble because it's your fault. And your spouse, let's say your wife, is gives you cold shoulder, you are threatened that you might get kicked out. I need your help, man. Talk to me. What do you think God, God desires? And what do you think, what do you, what do you think uh, I should do? What do you think I should pursue? Well, conventional, well-meaning people, what people desire is you can't lose your family, man. You can't lose your marriage. You need to win her heart back. Do everything you're supposed to be doing to win her heart back. Oh, nothing wrong with that. Because if you really don't discern the first thing first, most well-meaning people will give you that. Let me give you another one. One that I got in trouble with. Okay? And not about my marriage, but my younger days, how I did ministry. I was a youth minister. I was a youth pastor for several years. What do you think God desires? Oh, Paul, you've given special gift of loving these teenagers. You have a way to connect with them. High school kids and you know, even college. So I think it's great. You know what I did? Instead of caring for my own self, even self-care, it's still very difficult for me. And paying attention to my father, elderly father who was about to pass and his weak faith because he came to know Christ after his retirement after years of practicing medicine and being against any kind of uh, non-scientific things he was open to Christ and he got baptized but I felt a cultural gap and I spent night after night I mean the kids don't have money I, I was I was a, I was supporting my mom by working at this mom, my mom's cafeteria in the building so it was not like I was a rich man but I would gladly buy them 
hamburgers, and, and you know, McDonald's ice cream because it's cheap. To hang out, to listen to them. And to a point that I would get phone calls 12.30 at night and 1 o'clock at night because they're going through major crisis in their own house or boyfriend problem, girlfriend problem. Conventional will of God that people discern for me was, man, that's good. You should go all out. But what if someone asked me, what do you think God desires to see in you? I have to say no to those teenagers who really need me. I was basically replacing their father, missing father. I have to say no to them to say yes to God. And one of the siblings in your tr- in trouble, some kind of like even legal trouble, what do people do usually? Try to save him. Ah, he's a black sheep, but we need to save him. We can't go to let him go to prison. What does God desire? For him to not to go to prison? For him to repent and turn to God from his sin, from utterly broken to God and Cry out to God, have mercy on me, on me, O oh God. I was, I was wise in my own eyes. Now I see my stupidity, my foolishness. I need you. Guide me. That's what God desires. And going back to the marriage thing, even if you don't, your wife get, get, get your wife back, and your marriage is not restored, will you seek God with true repentance? That's what God desires. Brothers and sisters, but all these things, things will be added unto you. 99% of 100 cases I've seen, God restored the marriage, God Save the person from sickness. God, to a certain degree, have mercy on prolonging damage of that person. Third and last, to put God first means to see God as a chief end in life, not as a means to an end. For those of you who uh, were here last Sunday, this is a somewhat redundant, but I need to emphasize. The first thing means it is the, the thing, the chief end. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Apostle Paul's uh, urge to all of us is, so that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's put it in more emotional language. I think many of us are feelers. We need this in terms of joy and pleasure. What is better than anything else? Not the good things. Second things that you look for. King David, in David's language in Psalm 63, verse 1 through 3, 
O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because what? Because my religious life will be restored, and that's important to me. No. Because you will bless me continually my life. Protect me from King Saul who's trying to kill me. No. Because your steadfast love is better than life. If I could have your steadfast love, it's okay for me to die. My lips will praise you. So think about this, sisters and brothers. You don't have to protect anything that you desire so much from God because that is actually from God. And the God in his own sovereign, sovereignty, and he is wiser than you, and then he knows you what's really good first things for you and me. Let's ask that for our church also, too. I mean, the current culture of even a temptation I get every time when I go to some kind of a pastor's gathering or any kind of uh, conference, the success is defined as how church is known in the city, how church is on the media, how church is growing in the number, how churches have made headlines anywhere. Is it really? What, what that's God desires for us. Throughout the retreat, I said this. I will never, ever want anything more than every single one of us completely surrender to the passionate love of God because I know that we will be the happiest people, most joyful people when we are surrendered. I close with this uh, excerpt from Martin Lloyd-Jones as a vision of our church, uh, as a, each person, as a Christ follower, and as the community of believers in Christ. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different, different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. That is how revival comes. That must also be true of us as individuals. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can. Though we, we happen to be Christian, but rather to be as different from everybody who is not a Christian as we can possibly be. Our ambition should be to be like Christ, 
The more like him, the better. The more like him we become, the more we shall be unlike everybody who is not a Christian. It's powerful because when you think about really putting God as a priority, that will look so different how you live, how I live, how our church functions. We will be different, completely, radically, counterculturally different. And I invite you, brothers and sisters, with God's mercy and God's grace, and I pray that our church will will one thing, desire what God desires, and seek God as our chief end in life, not as a means to an end. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your word, as much as it's convicting, not easy to listen. Father, to begin with, I need to hear that. Our church needed to hear that. So Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our heart that we may see glimpses of greatness of God and mercy and sovereign reign over the entire universe, that everything, every good thing comes from above, that we belong to you, that you are our Abba. Help us to to be relaxed and surrender all to you. Help us to seek you, not just in words and rhetoric, but with all of our heart, our strength, and our might, and our life. May your blessings upon us and second things be added unto us as we seek you with one single-mindedness. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray.